It's intriguing to watch older babies add words to their vocabulary. Probably one of the most common words that we find in the vocabulary of babies is no, or no, no. It reminds us of the sinfulness of our babies, that they're sinners by nature and they're sinners by choice. Our granddaughter recently added a new word to her vocabulary about six months ago, and it was the word why. Why? And since she's my granddaughter, I won't say it shows her depravity or sinfulness, but she would add it and use that word sometimes by saying, why, Gammy? Why, Papa? And Marlene, my wife, is patient, so she doesn't mind uh, responding to Cammy and explaining why. So sometimes she's told, eat your vegetables, and she'll say, why? And Marlene will explain why. And she'll respond, why? And Marlene will explain why, and she would say, why? And so it becomes a whole dialogue. Uh, so for me, it's a little bit different story. Uh, I try to be patient, but I try to also cut to the chase. So when she asks me why, you know what I say? Because I said so. Because I said so. This morning, uh, we begin a new preaching series on First John. And I can imagine that some of you might be saying to yourself, why? First John. And I could respond by simply saying, because it's God's word, because it's one of the 66 books of the new, of the Bible. But if I responded that way, I'm not sure that would motivate you to hear the sermons or to read First John or to study it or to memorize it or to meditate on it. I'm not sure by just simply telling you that fact, that reality, that that's how you would respond. So this morning I want to, so to speak, address the elephant in the room. Uh, the question that might be in your mind, why this book and why not some other book? First uh, John was written by an apostle, the apostle John. John's father was Zebedee, his mother more than likely was Salome, and his brother was James. Uh, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we saw that James and John were fishermen by occupation. And one day the Lord Jesus Christ saw James and John, and he called James and John to be his disciples. He called them, in essence, to be fishers of men, rather than fishers of fish. And James and John responded to that call. They followed the Lord Jesus Christ. James and John had a nickname. They were known as the Sons of Thunder. Evidently, they were a little rushed and hurried uh, in their responses. There were times that they would get a little bit upset so they were known as the Sons of Thunder. 
In fact, when we read the Gospel of Mark, we also learn that James and John wanted the best seats in the house. They came to Jesus one day and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and sit on your left? John, the one who wrote 1 John, was given the care and responsibility for Jesus' mother. When the Lord Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, he told the apostle John to take care of his mother, Mary. So John is a significant individual. He's known as the apostle of love. Even though he started off being known as a son of thunder, he ended up being known to the Christian church and even today as the apostle of love or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was transformed by being around Christ, so much so that his character was not that of thunder and anger and wrath, but rather of love. And he's the one who writes this book. It comes from him. But why should we devote our attention? Why should we focus in on this book? I want to give you four reasons why this book ought to be the focus of our attention. Why this book should be something that we think about and make a part of our life in the upcoming weeks and months ahead. Why, First John? Because of its assurance of salvation. This first epistle shouts out to every reader that you can know for certain that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That you do not have to live your Christian life in doubt. That you don't have to wait till you die to find out whether you're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus or whether you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. First John is known as the epistle of Christian certainty. There are certain things that God wants us to know as we walk with him. And one of the worst things that can be true of a child of God is to spend their time on earth doubting whether or not they're saved. God does not intend any true believer to doubt their salvation. And I'm not saying that there won't be time that we might doubt our salvation. But biblically speaking, we have no reason at all to wonder whether or not I'm going to heaven. And hopefully none of us has bought into the idea that all of us are going to heaven. Sometimes we go to funerals and the person has lived like the devil their whole life. And we have the audacity to put the person in heaven because they came to church one Sunday. Are there a priester? comes on Christmas and Easter. No, the, the Bible doesn't give assurance to an individual like that. 
But to the genuine believer, the Bible does give assurance. When we come to 1 John, the, the verse that stands out as far as it's the reason why this book was re- written is the one that I mentioned that's on the cover of your bulletin. 1 John 5.13. It probably gives the purpose for the book. But before we look at that verse, there's some other verses in this book that give us the reason why it was written, the purpose for it uh, being written. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. John says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. For what purpose, John? That you also may have fellowship with us. John lets his readers know right from the beginning that one of the purposes of him writing this book is that the readers of this book might have fellowship with him and others. And he goes on to say that their fellowship, their partnership is with Jesus and with God. In the very next verse, verse 4, John says, these things we write. For what purpose, John? So that our joy may be made complete. John says as an apostle that his joy would be full, that his joy would run over when the people of God recognize the fact that they are in the body of Christ. And then one other verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John gives another purpose why he's writing. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's the heart of a pastor. John is a pastor. And as he writes to his readers, he says, I'm writing to you. Recognizing, and he just said it in chapter 1, recognizing that we do sin. But John says, I I write these words to you. I write this book to you because I don't want you to sin not even once. You're not being loved properly. You're not being shepherded properly if people don't care about whether or not you sin. John says, I'm writing these things in order that you may not sin. But he knows that they will. But his heart's desire for them is that they don't sin even once. And that's why he says in the very next verse, but if a person does sin, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But those are just some of the purposes of 1 John. But the purpose is 1 John 5, 13. When John says, these things I have written, it's as if he's, comes to the end of the book and he says, I've written all of these things to you. To who? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to the whole world. He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, I'm writing these things to you. To to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. For what purpose? For what goal? That you may know. Know what? Know that you have eternal life. 
John says, I've taken the time to write these verses to you. I've written this book so that you, in your current life as a believer in the name of Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. Know it. Be certain about it. And so throughout this book, one of the words he likes to use is the word know. The word know. Repeatedly, he provides the readers with how they can know that they have eternal life. My, my friends, you don't have to be in doubt about whether or not you're saved. You don't have to wonder if you committed some sin that's going to end up with you being lost for eternity. John writes this book so that you can know that you have eternal life. And that certainty, that knowledge, doesn't come from the fact that you prayed a prayer. It doesn't come from the fact that you've been baptized. It doesn't come because you walked down an aisle. John doesn't point to any of those things. Let me point out to you a few verses where he tells us how we can know that we have eternal life. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. We know. We have certainty that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Doesn't say you're perfect, but, but the bent of your life is obedience to the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 29, John says to his readers, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God, is born again. How can I know I've been born again? I practice righteousness as defined by God. Chapter 3, verse 14. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How, how can I know that I'm no longer in the realm of darkness, but I'm now in the realm of light, in the realm of Christ? John says, we know that we passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. We love one another. That's how we know. And then one more verse, chapter 3, verse 24. John says, we know by this that he abides in us. That is, we're a child of God by the spirit whom he has given us. The presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. How can you know that you have eternal life? Pass these ethical tests. Don't look at the words, so to speak, that you say, but, but, but look at the life that you live. John doesn't base the certainty of our salvation because we talk good, but he looks at our walk. And God wants you, my friends. You 
believers in Christ. God wants you to know that you are saved. He wants you to experience the assurance, the blessed assurance of salvation. And so he lets us know how we can know with certainty that we indeed are part of the family of God. Why? First John, because of its emphasis on love. One of the reasons for the presence of First John in our Bibles is because of what it has to say about love. And those who are part of the Wednesday night Bible study, you know that because we've been talking about love and particularly what John teaches about love. But, but John has a whole lot to say about love. He speaks of love many, many times. And his emphasis is not so much on us loving God. Yes, we are to love God. Remember, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But John's emphasis is on us loving one another. He's not worried about vertical love. He's worried about horizontal love. He's worried about you and me loving our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the same family of God that we are a part of. That's his emphasis. And you read 1 John, and you see and you hear John's emphasis on love. It's like the book is overflowing with love. It's like torrential rains of love are being poured down. That's how significant, that's how important this theme is in 1 John. There are 105 verses in 1 John. You don't believe me? You can go count them when you have time, when you read through 1 John. But some some form of the word love appears 52 times. Almost half of the verses, there's some form of the word love. The verb, I love, occurs 28 times. The noun, love, occurs 18 times. And even the adjective, beloved, our dearly loved one, occurs six times. If you were to take a razor blade and cut out the word love, or I love, our beloved, from all of its occurrences in 1 John, 1 John would have a lot of holes in it because it talks over and over again about love. And not only that reality, but there are extended discussions on 1 John. I mentioned those in the notes, in the outline that you are given. But I I don't want to look at those extended discussions. I just want to remind us of some key verses in 1 John that stresses to us the importance of love. John writes in chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. It's like John is writing his letter, and and he's saying, slow down, 
Just stop for a moment. Just pause before you go any further. See, behold, how great, how extensive, how massive a love the Father has bestowed upon his children. John is blown away by God's love that has been extended and poured out to his children. And John said, just slow down. Just fall into your chair and your seat and behold how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. And he just gives one evidence. He said that we should be called the children of God. That is a marvelous example that, that we have experienced God's love, that we should be called children of the heaven, uh, of the God of heaven and earth. And, and if that's not enough, John adds this little statement, and such we are. It's not just that we're called children of God. Just because you're called something doesn't make you that. John said, you're called children of God, but you are. Can, can, can you fathom that? That you and I, who are sinners by nature, by choice, that you and I, coming into this world depraved and sinful and rebellion, in rebellion against God, that you and I, because of God's great love, because of God's amazing grace, not only are we called the children of God, we are. I am a child of God. And John says, just pause for a moment. Think about that. What great love the Father has bestowed upon us. Chapter 3, verse 16. John says, we, we know love by this. Now, sometimes, we, what does love look like? How does it act? What is its nature? John says, we know love by this, that he, that is J Jesus, laid down his life for us. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus laying down his love for us. And John goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he uses the adjective, the noun and the verb, all in one verse. Beloved. And I like that. Because it would be bad if John were to address his readers as knuckleheads. Knuckleheads love one another. You think somebody would respond to that? But he said, beloved, dearly loved ones, I love you. Beloved. Let us love one another. Why? For this thing called love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then also in verse 11 of chapter 4, he calls him again, beloved, dearly loved ones. If God so loved us, if God so loved us, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So John, in love, 
when he calls us beloved, hits us over the head with love by repeatedly referring to it and gives us the example of love in God himself, in Christ's death on the cross, exhorts us to love one another. So why First John? Why this book? It's designed that you and I might be loving Christians, that you and I might live the love life that God expects us to live. Why First John? The third reason why, because of its revelation about God, because of what this book says about God. There's no greater subject than the subject of God. It's wonderful to talk about grace. It's wonderful to talk about mercy, talk about love, but, but nothing compares with the subject of God. God is the greatest subject that you and I can ever think about and contemplate. And that's why Paul, when he writes to the Christians at Colossae, he says in Colossians 1.10, I'm praying that God will work in your life so that you might be increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul says, I want you to keep growing. In the knowledge of God, I want you to keep allowing that information about who he is to become a part of your life. So you're maturing, you're growing, you're further today than you were yesterday, than you were last year. And John writes about God so that we can grow in our knowledge of God. He writes about God in general. But then specifically, he writes about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That our God is a triune God. And if you are deficient in your knowledge of God, it will show up in your walk with God. Do not deceive yourself into thinking. That if you know little about God, that somehow you can live a great life for God. It just ain't that way. God continually reveals himself in his word. Who he is. What he has done. With, with the, the desire that, that that information will be translated into transformation of life. You show me a person who has a small view of God. I'll show you a person whose walk doesn't measure up to what God wants. So we need to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And 1 John helps us to do that. The term God appears 62 times in 40 verses. This is a short book, five chapters, but 60 Different time the actual word God appears? John wants us to know from the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. He will say also that God is love on two different occasions. He will point out the fact that God is faithful, that God is just, that God is righteous. 
that, that God is true. He ends his book talking about idols because if you don't understand that God is the true God, then you are wasting your time with things that are false gods. So he says, guard your hearts from idols. God is a true God. And he's not the God of your imagination or my imagination, but he's the God that is revealed in the word of God. And John goes to great lengths to let us know who God is. So we serve. Now we sing the song, what a mighty God we serve. And our view of God is about that big. It sounds good. It sounds easy to say how mighty he is. But do we really believe that? Can we back that up from the word of God? And so, even though most of the time when John uses the word God, he's referring to the Father. But there are particular times that John will use the Father in his letter. And he talks about the Father in relationship to his Son, Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But John also talks about the Father in relationship to the children of God. We we saw the verse, chapter 3, verse 1. See what what great love the Father has bestowed upon us. Yes, he's the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's my personal Father. And you might not know who your physical Father is, or your physical Father might have died. But the good news is, is that you have a heavenly Father. And John talks about this heavenly Father. Jesus Christ plays a prominent role in 1 John. He's referred to as Jesus, as Jesus Christ, as Christ, as the begotten Son, the Son, the only Son. He's referred to throughout the book. At the center, at the core of our Christian faith is Jesus Christ. In John, when he talks about Jesus Christ, He says that God sent Jesus into the world. Why? That we might live. That's why one of the reasons Jesus came, so that you and I might live, that we might have true abundant life. He he was sent into the world to be the propitiation for our sin, to satisfy God's holy wrath. He was sent into the world to be the savior of the world. He was sent into the world to basically destroy the works of the devil. He was sent into the world that you and I might have cleansing from all our sins. John says early in the book that Jesus Christ cleanses us, not from a few sins, not from several sins or most sins, but that the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross for the believer, cleanses us, washes us from all 
our sins. And so no wonder we are commanded to believe in him. To recognize him as the son of God. And the scripture tells us in 1 John 5 verse 12, the one who has the son has life. If you don't have the son, you do not have life. It's just that simple. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ? If you have, you have the son. And the one who has the son has life everlasting in the presence of God. But the one who doesn't have the son, if you walk away today, you came in here without the son and you leave without the son, the wrath of God abides upon you. And let's not forget God, the Spirit, is spoken of also. And one of the great truths of 1 John is that in chapter 4, verse 4, it says that greater is he who is in us, that is in believers, than he who is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and greater is he who is in us, than the one who's in the world talking about the devil. You can and I can live a victorious Christian life because not of our strength and our ability, but because the one who is in us, who helps us, who aids us, who guides us, who we depend upon is greater than the one in the world. One of the reasons why First John is so precious is because of its revelation about God in general and about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in particular. Why? First John, because of its exposure of doctrinal error. That's the last reason that I want to give you. First John exposes doctrinal error. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. It doesn't act like it doesn't exist. No, John takes the floodlight and shines it brightly on erroneous views of Jesus Christ and how Christians might live. You see, the reason why John wrote this book there was at one time a group of individuals who identified themselves as Christian. You can read about it in 1 John 2, 18 and following, but they identified themselves as Christian. They were among the readers that John wrote to. But John says in verse 19 of chapter 2 that they went out from us. They left. A group of them, they left. And John said the reason why they left is because they were not of us. Even though there was an attachment, even though there was an affiliation, their departure proved that they were not genuine Christians. And I'm not talking about transferring from one church to the other. I'm talking about leaving and abandoning the biblical truths that are in the word of God. And particularly this group, had a wrong view about Jesus Christ. And so when John writes this letter, he talks about antichrist. Those who are against 
Christ in verse 18 in chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about false prophets. You see, they had a wrong message about Christ. It showed up in how they lived, and they spread it. They spread that message. They got on Facebook and Instagram. They got on you know, radio and wrote articles. They spread their heretical teachings. And John says, oh, ignore them. Oh, don't pay attention to them. Oh, everybody believes different. No, John shines a spotlight on, he exposes their false beliefs. Because false beliefs lead to false behavior. And so when you read 1 John, John doesn't mind being divisive. John doesn't mind bringing up, quote, different doctrines. If those doctrines don't line up with the word of God, they need to be detected. They need to be discussed. They need to be denounced. And so when you read 1 John, that's one of the things that you will encounter. John doesn't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we love Jesus. No, it does matter what we believe. And what some people believe about Jesus is going to cause them to spend eternity in the lake of fire because they have a false belief about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So because of 1 John's assurance of salvation, because of its emphasis on love, because of its revelation about God, and its exposure of doctrinal error, we need to hear the sermons on this book. And I want to encourage you to make that a priority in your life, to hear the sermons on First John. Even if you can't come to the worship service, we made it easy for you. Every sermon goes online. You can go to the website. You can listen to it. I want to encourage you to read the book of First John at least once a week. If you want this, the, the word of God to transform you, if you want the word of God to make a difference in your life, make a commitment to the word of God. Read it at least once a week. You know how long it's going to take you to read it? If you speed read, it's not going to take any time. But if you're a slow reader like me, 15, 18 minutes. You got 15 or 18 minutes out of your busy life that you can spare to read the word of God that is living and effective and cutting and penetrating and discerning and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's less than three minutes a day. If you want First John to bless your life, then I would encourage you to do that. Study this book. Take out your uh, study Bibles. Take out your books on First John and go further than what we're able to do on Sunday morning. Memorize 
1 John. And I would say you can even memorize the whole book. That's not an impossibility. Set some high standards for yourself. Ask God to help you to memorize this book. But even if you choose not to do that, memorize at least one verse a week. Start off with 1 John 5.13. That's on the cover of your bulletin. Meditate on selected verses from this book. And then pray. Pray that God will use this preaching series in the life of Fairview and in the life of its members. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us why, just some basic reasons why First John is so important, so significant, why you have included it as part of this marvelous book that we call the Bible. Thank you that it speaks of the assurance of salvation, that we can know for certain that we are saved, that we have a know-for-sure salvation. Thank you that it speaks on love and the importance of love and how love is so critical in our relationship to one another. Thank you, Father, for this book that reveals who you are, that gives us revelation that you are trying you, God, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thank you, Lord, that this book just points out to us and exposes doctrinal error. Help us to look out for the doctrinal errors that are mentioned in this book so that we will not be guilty of sinning against you. Lord, I pray that this book, 1 John, will be a tremendous blessing in the lives of each and every Christian under the sound of my voice. And especially, Lord, that you would use this book in the life of our church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.